Welcome to the Naked Truth. Peace be with you. We're in Matthew. That's the first book of the New Testament. We're at chapter 10. Let's begin at verse 1. Um, and just so you understand the difference, in case this is your first time reading with me, the New Testament is the part of the Bible where Christianity is introduced. And it might surprise you, but the whole Bible is not Christianity. There are different religions, different people, entities being called God throughout the Bible. And only in six books of the entire 60 plus books of the Bible do you get anything related to what Jesus says is Christianity. That's the red letters. That's what we focus on here. Red letter Christianity in a nutshell here on The Naked Truth. It's Saturday night, so that's what we're on. Mondays and Wednesdays, we go over other parts of the Bible that don't have anything Jesus said, but Jesus does sometimes refer to them. But tonight, it's Gospel Night. So we're in the book of Matthew. We're at chapter 10. Let's begin. Verse 1, And when he had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. So let's not read over anything that it says. Let's see what it says. It says that Jesus gave people power, but he didn't say everyone. He said he gave, it says he gave them, the 12 disciples, that power. So maybe we're taking too much on ourselves in modern times or even even since those times to think that we should be able to exercise those same sort of powers, including exercising demons, casting out demons and that sort of thing. It'd be nice if the same power was given to all Christians to do such things. Um, but it's, that's not what it says. It says, and it's not even in red letters. So it's not Jesus saying, I'm giving you that power. It's the person who's passed on Matthew for us to to be able to read it now, letting us know uh, that they believe that that's what um what um the whole situation is amounting to Jesus giving them that power um unless it was said and just not written um verse 2 now the names of the 12 apostles are these first Simon who is called Peter and Andrew his brother James the son of Zebedee and John his brother so we read about those four so far the four fishermen that Jesus called and they um followed him like he said I'm just going to read through the rest of them and um, the next two verses. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Labaeus, whose surname was Thaddeus. So as always, forgive me if, with the pronunciation if it's wrong. Um, the ones that stand out to me there are Thomas. That's the one who's called the doubter, doubting Thomas. That's where that one comes from. Matthew, the tax collector, is the same Matthew is believed to. The book of Matthew is attributed to. Um, let's see, um, uh, the one that says Thaddeus, I think that one was also named St. Jude, Judas Thaddeus, but I guess he gets called Thaddeus also. Uh, verse 4, Simon the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Um, so that Judas is the other Judas, the Iscariot, the one who ends up, um, hanged after the crucifixion. It says by suicide, uh, in one gospel. In another gospel, it says at some point his body is... Uh, his guts and stuff in the uh, spewn all over the land in another area that gets called um, a field that gets purchased and bought by the religious folks. Um, but it's that same Judas. Um, when you think of Judas Kiss, that's the same Judas it's talking about. It's uh, someone who is coming to you as a friend but stabbing you in the back. Uh, the Judas the Betrayer. 
but he's not the only one who denied and uh, sort of betrayed Jesus in that hour of trial just before the crucifixion and Jesus's trial. He's just, just the one who gets the reputation. Verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them saying, do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the, of the, of the Samaritans. So now we're getting, because it's switched to red letters, now we're getting quotes attributed to Jesus and it's Jesus telling them, and maybe at this point he will say what he's going to say about having power over sicknesses and healing and demons and whatnot. But so far, he's um, telling them, giving them the directions, the GPS, where it is they're supposed to head. And he's telling them, don't go in the way of the Gentiles. That means the people who are not Jewish and by uh, by um, by blood lineage, they're not Jewish, they're non-Jewish people. So he's saying, don't go into that direction. And he's saying, do not enter a city of the Samaritans. The Samaritans are the same Samaritans that Jesus uses in a parable uh, throughout his ministry about the Good Samaritan, where good things arise in some of the most least expected places, not religious people, not people who consider them, themselves holy and righteous, but instead from the unexpected place like the Samaritans, who, as you read just now, he's not even sending disciples to at this point. Verse 6, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So that's the directions, the roadmap he's telling them to take. He's saying go to the people of the promise, the people who have the different prophecies, have the different scriptures, what we call the Old Testament in modern times. The people who have all those different books of um, pointing to the coming of a Savior, the Messiah, who we call Jesus as Christians, um, Go to those people first, because they're the ones who have all the information, who have the different scriptures and stuff. Jesus is saying, go to them first. They they should be the ones to recognize Jesus as the Savior first, before everyone else. But we know that's not how it turns out. Verse 7, and as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So now Jesus is giving them the directions where to go. Now he's giving them the message of what to say. And I think that's... Um, that applies even after Jesus' crucifixion because he lets us know if they're teaching his message, if they'll follow, if they follow um, uh, the disciples' message, they'll follow his message. That's because he's given them the message what they're supposed to be preaching. So if a message, or even in modern times, calls itself Christian, then it should align with these red letters of what it is Jesus preaches since that's Christianity. There's another religion that arises after the gospel book of Luke and that first chapter in Acts. That's a whole nother religion, um, the majority of it, that points to someone else as the leader altogether. And you know that because the red letters end at that point. So you know it's a whole other religion that the rest of the Bible, up until you get to Revelation, where the red letters appear again, that that is even dedicated to. But so Jesus is telling them what even to say, letting them know the time is now. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So I think that message also applies. It's, he's given that message to the disciples to spread that because I think it applies to those people then that the kingdom of heaven, meaning Jesus himself, that salvation that they're looking for is right there among them. It's right there at the door. 
Um, verse 8, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. So again, these are the things Jesus is giving the disciples power to do. So we as Christians now may or may not be able to flex those same energies, but um, for sure the disciples were given power too. So maybe we, again, shouldn't beat ourselves up too much when we ask for prayer and think we have the faith for, I mean, ask for things like healings or relief from things and pray for them and believe we have the faith for them and then they don't necessarily manifest in the way in the time and dimension where we expect them to don't beat ourselves up too much for that because some of these powers these um are, are not necessarily for every christian but specifically i believe given to the disciples because one he's sending them out and for two he knows people aren't going to believe if they don't see they seeing is believing for a whole lot of people. If they they even tell him, even Thomas, when he says, "If I don't see the print of the nails in his hands, I'm not gonna." He's not gonna believe it's Jesus after the crucifixion. There's something very powerful about the visual imagery of actually seeing the different miracles and seeing the resurrected body that makes believing a whole lot easier. Which I think is another reason Jesus says after he does show uh, reveal himself to thomas and thomas believes it's him after the crucifixion and after the resurrection that jesus says well good for you you believe and i'm paraphrasing he's saying but thomas you've seen because you, thomas you've seen me that's why you believe blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed us modern day christians christians since the time that jesus walked the earth jesus is saying god bless us because we managed to have find some faith great or small as it may be, even though we didn't see any of the events of Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, from his ministry to his crucifixion, to his resurrection, to his ascension. We didn't get to witness any of those things uh, firsthand, yet still managed to find or at least seek faith. Um, but the disciples are getting to do those things and flex those powers, I think, so that people will know that they're not just bumping their gums. They're not just running their mouth. They actually are able to tap into something real, a power that actually exists. And he's telling them freely of receive, freely give, as in, I believe he's letting them know, freely you've received this power to do these things, to heal in the sick, sick and casting out demons and whatnot. So freely give, as in freely use those powers. Make sure as you go along in your ministry to flex those powers so people will see and know that, again, they're tapped into something real, something different. Verse 9, provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts. Again, this must also be for the disciples because it'd be tough to go around nowadays and probably even back then, I'm sure, without those sort of things that the world requires of you. Money, in a word. And But Jesus is letting them know, I believe, that they don't have to worry about the money and the provisions because in being faithful to the mission that he sent them on, those provisions are already set for them and already lined up. Like I've said before, like in the video games where if you go, like in the Adventures of Link, for instance, or Zelda, those video games, if you follow the directions and go to the person in the town where you're supposed to go and present them with what you're supposed to present them with, then your provision will already be given to you and waiting for you to receive it. It's just a matter of obedience. Um, 
Verse 10, nor bag for your money, for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs for a worker is worthy of his food. So again, I think that's what Jesus is saying. If you do the work I'm telling you to do, then don't worry. Your wages will be provided. You'll be taken care of. The provisions are already set. So you don't have to worry about packing your bags or making sure you have plenty of clothes or your shoes wearing out or any of that. And again, I think this is directed specifically to the disciples. Although I'm sure modern Christians probably uh, probably adopt that thinking or that promise of uh, provisions and power for themselves in being faithful to um, the Christian mission. But I don't think it necessarily applies. Uh, verse 11. Now, whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy and stay there till you go out. So Jesus is saying, um, ask around, don't be duped. Because just because a place has a steeple on it, on it doesn't mean it's a house of God or whatever other religious uh, symbol you may be looking for, whether it's a new moon or a star or whatever other faith you may be. Just because the building you go to has that on top of it doesn't mean that that's what's actually being practiced there. And it absolutely doesn't mean that that's going to be your uh, plug-in download of God at all. And that's just the building. So he's saying, ask around, inquire who in it, and see who actually is walking walk, not just talking the talk. And he's saying, once you do inquire and find out, stay there until you go out. So don't go hopping from house to house. Um, verse 12, I think he's going to get into further why it should be that way or why he's instructing them to be that way. Verse 12, and when you go into a household, greet it. So um, he doesn't say greet them. He says greet the household. I think um, that goes to the, um, I think what it's, what Jesus is saying there is that um, the energy in that house, I know it might sound metaphysical and whatnot, but I think that's what Jesus is saying. The spirit, the souls, the energy of the people in that house will fill that house and you'll be able to feel it and you'll be able to sense it and pick up on it spiritually, that is. And I think what he's saying there is make sure you greet it and just like you would greet a person and when you greet a person you get a you get for sure signs on how that person is sometimes they'll greet you back sometimes they'll ignore you act like they don't hear you sometimes they'll look at you acknowledge that they hear you and still not speak to you so i think jesus is saying that same way you greet people greet the household greet the the um um the places they're going at specifically the disciples again but maybe, again, might be something modern Christians can put into practice. Um, but greet it um, and see, I guess, see what response you get when you greet it. Verse 13, if the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. So it's a contingent thing when you greet the household. Don't assume anything, but instead see what kind of energy is there. Is it a peaceful spirit resting in that house with the people who live there? And if it is, he's saying, if it's a worthy household, that peace will come upon you. You'll be assured. You'll have that blessed assurance as the hymn goes that um, there's a righteous presence there. But he's saying, but if not, because it cannot, that can be the case also. He's saying, let your peace return to you. So greeting the household with peace, the people who live there, the building itself with peace you'll know right off and when you find out 
don't fight that and realize what that is and accept it. Either it's a place that's greeting you and welcoming you, celebrating you, not just tolerating you, as Charlemagne says, um, then you'll know it and 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 respond to it in kind. But if it's not, if you're not really welcome there, if they really don't want you there, pick up on that also. Let your peace return to you and uh, act accordingly. Verse 14, and whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. That's the act accordingly part. When you greet someone, some place, something with that peace, that if it's truly what's in your heart, that's what will spew out of your mouth. A peace will come, will surround you and present itself. And if you present yourself to people, to places with that same peace and it's not returned to you, Jesus is letting us know, don't let it, don't let it sway you. Don't let it stick to you. Don't let that bother you. Instead, let your peace return to you. And he's saying, and when you leave, shake off the dust of your feet, meaning don't let that cling to you. Let it be dirt off your shoulder, as the song says. Uh, don't let that bring you down. Don't let that hold you back even one iota. Instead, dust it off like you would, you would dust off your feet. Uh, dust off your shoes like you dust off your shoulder and move on. Don't let it cling to you even as much as the dust would. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So don't read over that. That's pretty shocking. If you go to most churches in America that I've ever been to, not all, but most, uh, when they get to the Sodom and Gomorrah preachings, that's where the uh, hellfire and damnation uh, sermons pop up and the condemnation of the LGBT and how wicked and evil and damned the people who fall under that umbrella are. But you see right here, according to Christ, because again, it's red letters. That's not the case at all. Jesus is letting us know beyond the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, there's people even worse off, even more contemptible. And that's the people who won't accept the Christian ministry being spread and that's not to say agnostics that's not to say people who are um are atheists that's to say these righteous i would think these people who call themselves righteous and holy and supposedly uh, an outlet a roadway to god and then yet they will reject the christian message again and again and again that's usually these churches it's not just people who don't believe it's actually people who call themselves Christians, but don't actually accept any of the things that Jesus says, reject the red letters outright in favor of whatever else there is that's out there that they choose to believe. And I've seen that happen again and again in churches I've been in. I've seen it happen even with my own family, uh, who all, as far as I know, not all, because one has sort of walked away from religion and who can blame him. But um, for the most part, claiming to be Christians, even though who's walked away, I think he's still... Um, has Christian faith. He's just walked away from the religion, which I totally understand. But I think what it's pointing to is that whole element that causes people to turn away because they're not focused on what Jesus says. Instead, they're focused on some dogma BS, which is popular 
and gets people's attention and keeps people tuning into it. But it's actually just confusion and antichrist because it's not what Jesus says. Jesus just said it and made it clear. It's going to be more tolerable for those same people who uh, these churches like to condemn, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's saying it's going to be more tolerable for those same people who got fired uh, fired on from heaven. It's going to be more tolerable for those people even than for the people who reject uh, people who are coming to them with the Christian message. Verse 16, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. So Jesus is saying a couple of things there that we shouldn't read over either. He's letting us know. He's telling us to be like those sheep. Harmless. Don't go out there looking to start fights, pick fights, and cause uh, ruckus with people in that sense. And his word alone, the red letters, are enough to cause division and separate the wheat from the chaff. So he's saying, I'm not sending you out like that as a warrior. Instead, I'm sending you out as a sheep. But he's saying, I'm letting you know there's plenty of wolves out there. So be careful. And he's saying, and be wise. He's not not just wise as in um, uh, not just ordinary wisdom, but be wise as serpents. That's super duper slick, sly, and wise. That's next level wisdom. Because remember the serpent, even from the beginning of the Bible, as the as he's as it's as the devil is uh, described as a serpent or a seraphim, an angel, as it, all of those things are descriptions of that same serpent in the garden um, that. Um, Pulls a fast one over on Adam and Eve, if you want to think of it that way. That is actually extremely wise. It took, takes timing, like the snakes do, and it takes patience to sit back and wait for people to dig their own grave and mess themselves up and then strike. That's how the serpents are. They don't, they don't act impulsively. They generally are very, very intentional about the things they do. Jesus is letting us know, be just as wise as the serpents are, the snakes are. Your adversary, be just as wise, but be harmless as doves. And some preachers will twist this to say, oh, a dove will attack you if you go into its nest. Any creature just about will attack you if it goes into its nest. But that's not what Jesus is pointing to. Jesus is saying, I think, as harmless as doves as in the nature of doves. The first uh, instinct of most any um, bird when it's in danger is to fly away. Uh, to get away from the danger, to get away from the harm. I think that's what Jesus is letting us know also to be like those doves. When you see things aren't right, when you see the situation is harmful, dangerous, wicked, evil, do like the doves and get away from it. Don't stick around to peck, peck, peck away till something does you in. Instead, get away from the situation. Recognize the evil and get away from it. Verse 17, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. So what does Jesus tell you to beware of, tell us to beware of? Not the serpents, not the snakes in the garden, not um, not uh, uh, a whole lot of other things. What he tells us to beware of is men. That's people. Beware of people. And what does he say to, why does he say to beware of them? Because they will scheme and plot and plan against you. Um, he's saying delivering up to councils uh, and scourge you in their synagogues. So the scourging is that whipping, the beating. That may be literal with um, being beaten and whipped like Jesus was and like some of the disciples ended up being. 
again, he's telling this to the disciples. And some of it, it seems, applies to modern Christians also. But he's saying not just the, not only in that way do they scourge you, they can also scourge your name, drag you through the mud uh, figuratively with your reputation, with um, who, with your public, uh, with uh, with the public in that sense, to the point where you are um, beaten in that sense and scourged in that sense and unwelcome in that sense. Uh, from the councils to the synagogues. Verse 18, you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. So this we know he's absolutely, is for sure still talking to and about the disciples. Because the disciples going through that, being scourged and beaten, some of them crucified, some of them even also um, 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 facing the death penalty and executed, Jesus is letting them know that's what lies ahead for them. That's what's in the big picture path already painted for them. Uh, that doesn't mean they couldn't have tried to, do, to to get away from that path like Jonah tried to do in the Old Testament and the book of Jonah with the whale and all of that. But it is letting them know, like I've said it before, uh, I believe in a big picture sense, God plays out paths for us. Paths that lead upward and paths that lead downward. But sometimes the choice, I believe the choice, the free will choice is ours. Although the path and that the destiny that is attached to those paths, if you want to think of it as destiny, is already predetermined and laid out and God can see where it goes from that, like viewing a movie, um, but looks to see which choice we make. That's where the free will steps in. I think that's how I understand it. But he's letting them know that's what's going to happen to them, that and that, not that they might be brought before governors and kings, but that they will. And I, I say all that because that's how we have the Bible as it is today. It's not, like I've said before, it's not one book written by one person. It's one book consisting of many different books written by many different people over many different hundreds, thousands even of years. Um, so you have to keep that in mind. I would keep that in mind as you read the Bible and try to understand it and its meaning. And that it's because the disciples went through the suffering they did, the arrests and crucifixions and all of that, that we have the Bible as it is this day. Their testimonies were written in stone, as it were, and that they that's why they exist even now. Because the disciples went through these things, Jesus prophesied to them what happened to them. Verse 19, but when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. So, I was like I was just saying, this is how we have the Bible now because the disciples went through these things and gave their testimonies, sometimes even independently in separate places, and their accounts matched, even word for word, so they were taken, considered as gospel. I mean, parts of the Bible were like the book of Isaiah, that's what comes to mind. But uh, the disciples giving their testimonies through their trials and sufferings and sometimes execution is how... We have the copy of what we call the Bible now because they went through those things and recalled these events, presumably because they weren't just talking off the top of their head, but instead being inspired divinely as to what it is, what they should say and what they should speak. Just as Jesus is prophesying here, telling them that's what's going to happen to them. Verse 20, for it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. 
So again, letting him know it's not going to be your own words. It's not going to be your own memory. It's going to be the Holy Spirit inducing you to uh, what to speak and what to say so that these words would be set in stone, as it were, for us as the Bible, as the Old and New Testament, well, for the disciples, for the New Testament and their testimony. Verse 21, now brother will deliver a brother to death and a father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Now, I think some of the disciples are related and we know that at least one of them turned on Jesus himself, but probably each other. But this could also be pointing to, let me see, um, no, it could it could just still be talking about um, the disciples and the things they were going to go through. But uh, it could also be talking in a future sense of the divisions that would happen in the world, how parents and households will be divided over religious reasons, where um, they'll be divided. One thinking, oh, no, that's not righteous. That's not kosher. And another's thinking that's not holy. That's not righteous either. And having different um, belief systems and in society being to the point where it is now, where it can lead to a death penalty, depending on what you say and report about someone and something. So those times exist now, but apparently maybe even back then they existed leading to some of the persecution of the um, um, the disciples and apostles of Jesus back then. Verse 22, and you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. So Again, this may be directed only at the disciples, but I think it some of it can apply to modern day Christians also that faithfulness to the end is rewarded. But he's letting them know they're going to face a whole lot of hate. Um, but he's saying it, the hate that they face because uh, on his account, for his name's sake, for being Christian, for following what Jesus actually has to say, he's saying being faithful to that is uh, what gets you the crown, what gets you the prize. Because if you endure to the end, you'll be saved, is what Jesus is letting them know, letting us know. Verse 23, when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So Jesus is letting them know, if they give you a hard time in the cities I'm sending you out to, don't sweat it, go to another one, Move, keep it moving. And he's saying, keep it moving because you're not going to make it through all of these different cities that, you, that the message needs to go to before I come back, before the second coming, before Jesus returns. He's letting them know, go and go and go. And even in all you're going, you're still not going to make it to all the cities before I come back again. Verse 24, and they didn't. The disciples, as far as we know, are all deceased. Except for perhaps possibly one, if you, it's an article of faith, obviously. Um, Book of John, the way that gospel ends, sort of alludes to the possibility. Um, but either way, for the most part, they're gone. Um, so um, they didn't make it to all those cities before Jesus came again, as far as we can tell. Jesus hasn't come again yet. And I, I say that because if you read in the, um, also in the gospels, Excuse me, Jesus lets us know that second coming, the apocalypse, as you may think of it, the, isn't going to happen until the gospel is preached to all the world. So we can use that as our um, signal that it's getting near the end. And I guess, in a sense, we know that this generation probably is 
pretty close to the end because the way that the message can get spread throughout the world is through the internet. That makes the scripture, the Bible, the gospels available all around the world to anyone with a connection. So one, I think once internet is available for free, obviously it had to be free to be available to everyone. Once that's available everywhere around the globe, uh, then I think you can really start the clock that it can't be much further, or at least that's another signal for that next phase to begin once the gospel is available everywhere. Because that's what Jesus says. But first the gospel has to be preached through all the world and then the end will come. That's paraphrasing, but that's basically what he what Jesus says the order of events will be. Let's see. Um verse twenty four. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. So Jesus is letting him know to keep it humble and um, don't try to flex and uh, clout, look for clout. Don't clout chase. Don't expect your name to be bigger than his. Don't expect whatever religion. Uh, we're not whatever religion. If you're being faithful to what Jesus is preaching, don't expect that message to get bigger than Jesus. Don't expect your religion to be bigger than Christianity if you're following what Jesus is saying. Other things obviously are quite popular in the world, but that uh, should also let us know they're obviously not Christian because uh, Jesus is letting us know the disciple is not above his teacher. So if the message that you're following is true to Christianity, it'll align with what Jesus says. And if it doesn't and it's bigger than the Christian message, then it lets you know something right there. Uh, it's not Christian, and in fact, it is this other stuff Jesus is pointing to. Let's see. Um, where do we leave off? Oh, here we go. Verse 25. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? So Jesus is saying, if you're being true to the Christian message, then it should be enough for you that... Christ's message is what gets the headline. It should be enough for you that Jesus is the one who gets the fame and gets the clicks. It should not be about your own clout chasing again. It's supposed to be all about making the name and the word and the message of Jesus famous, not making yourself famous. And you can judge most churches by that pretty easily. Like I've said again and again, if you sit in on an hour of a sermon and they ref don't refer to the Bible at all, or if they do refer to the Bible, it's only a passage or two. And if it is a passage or, passage or two, it's generally from anywhere in the Bible, but not red letters, then <coughs> excuse me, all that is fine. Feel free to believe it if you want to, but just know it's not Christian. Because if it's Christian, it should be Christ's words. It should be these red letters. That should be the bulk of the message pointing to Jesus, letting us all know you won't need to go to that preacher. You don't need to come to me to get the message. I'm pointing you to Jesus to let you know he's the one with the message. He's the one with the, the lesson. He's the one with the keys to send you upward or send you downward. It's there. Not here, not me. It's him. And he's saying if they treated him that way, calling, saying it's a demon, that's what Bill's above. That's what he's referring to, some evil spirit, some evil entity. If they're even accusing Jesus of being led and guided by 
evil, then he's saying, then what do you expect to receive yourself if you're actually following Jesus? At best, you're going to get the same thing. People are going to think you're evil, demon-possessed, or working with some sort of Satan in you, rather than uh, what it is, rather than uh, something righteous. Verse 26, therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, and hidden that will not be known. So Jesus is saying things come to light. So don't worry about them. Don't sweat them. And you can see that happen again in, in modern times. He's telling it to the disciples, but you can see it in modern examples. For instance, with the COVID um, uh, epidemic, pandemic, how church after church, religion after religion, religious person after religious person stood up and told people, don't worry about it. It's a hoax. You don't have to worry uh, about a mask. You don't care about social distancing show up in the whole in the religion in the church anyway and make sure you bring your tithes and preacher after preacher dropped dead with that same message letting us know there's nothing there that's not there's something there but there's nothing righteous about that at all and it comes to light they end up eating those words or even choking on those words and dying with those words because those words aren't pointing you toward Christianity aren't pointing you to what Jesus has to say. They're pointing you to the pews so that you can drop off your donation. Verse 27, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. So Jesus is saying what he has to say should be shared. Like he's telling, like he said before in the parables, you don't light a lamp and put it under a basket. You don't uh, light a candle and put it in a closet, you light it so that it can shine light and be seen and shed light on things. It's not, you don't turn on a flashlight and put it in a drawer. You light it so that it can light uh, the pathway so you can shed light on things and see what's what. It doesn't make sense for you to have the light of life of Christianity in you and then hide it. It only makes sense for you to share it and show it. And he says, um, preach it on the housetops. That can mean standing out on your roof and sharing it. But in modern times, it can mean through the Internet, casting it through the waves, the airwaves and preaching it that way from your housetop, from a satellite, for instance, from a, a dish, from an antenna. It can mean that it's interesting how different things can take modern takes, but it's the same thing. Verse 28, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul rather fear him who is able to, to destroy both soul and body in hell. So Jesus is letting us know there, don't fear what people can do to you, the things they can say about you, or even the if you believe the revelation, the beast, and what I believe to be the internet, and its ability to even cut you off financially, from or at least affect you financially. Don't fear those things. Don't fear those the powers that the entities, the powers that be that have power over those things. He's saying, don't fear those, but instead fear the one who has power over the things that actually matter, your body and your soul. The body, what lives in this world and exists in this world and needs provisions and sustenance in this world, and the soul that also lives in this world, but then lives beyond the body into the next. He's saying, consider what happens to those and who has power over those, meaning God. Consider that and fear that, fear that power, fear getting that entity, that source of power, that energy wrong. That's where your fear should be. That's where our fear should be. Verse 29, 
Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? So, if you want to think of a copper coin, coin as like a penny, uh, since it used to be copper, I guess it's still partly copper now. Um, but think of it that way. He's saying two sparrows. So think of like two uh, Cornish game hens, two chickens sold for a coin, sold for some money. He's saying. Is not that the case that you can go out and buy a couple of chickens for a dollar or however much it is? I'm paraphrasing, but it's what he's saying. You can go out and buy a couple of birds for some money. He's saying, but even those birds that you can buy so cheap, they don't end up on your plate or in the grocery store or shot down by your book shot. They don't end up bullets by your uh forget what it is the what they use to shoot birds, but they don't end up there on your plate by chance they end up there with god's full knowledge of that's where they're going to end up so that presumably you can feed off them or you can offer them for whatever offering it is you're making or you can do whatever it is you're going to do with them but the point being their fate their destiny their pathway is already predetermined and god knows it god sees it it's even in god's will and it only happens with god's will it's not going to happen otherwise um, but that's interesting now to think about it because what happens to them is fully within God's will, uh, whether they end up on your plate or not. But something that doesn't necessarily end up in God's will is our own pathways that we take. And, cause, and we know that because Jesus gives us what we call the Lord's Prayer, where you have to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Well, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. We don't, why would you need to pray for God's will to be done at all on earth as it is in heaven? As it says, if God's will is the default. And like I said, that must mean God's will is not the default on earth. It may indeed be the default and the last word in heaven, but not necessarily on earth when it comes to our paths. When it comes to the birds that fall and end up on our plate, obviously they do, according to what Jesus just said. But our own paths, those are a different story. Uh, verse 30, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. And that takes many different forms also. I think what Jesus is saying, that even down to our hairs, there's an accounting for them. So if someone does you wrong, even in, say, like uh, the braiding shops, you may go to to pay people to braid your hair up, make it look pretty, weave your hair up and make it look good. But you're also, in many cases, unfortunately, paying those people to make you bald because that traction uh, alopecia is real. Uh, wearing weaves, wearing even um, braids, wearing your hair in twists and knots, maybe pretty, maybe even traditional, maybe culturally uh, your thing. But they also uh, lead to baldness in nine cases out of 10, I'd say. That number may not necessarily be right, but I've seen it. I've seen a whole lot of baldness from wearing your hair that way, pretty as it is. But I think what Jesus is saying in the same way or, or similarly that there's accounting, there's an accounting for that, even for the hairs of your head, for people who wrong you in that way and intentionally making the braids extra tight, making the weave extra, uh, extra tight so that you do end up balding from it. Yeah, it's you paying them to do it, but it's also them putting their energy, even knowingly or unknowingly or unknowingly into doing that to you, knowing that it's going to lead to that baldness. 
even though it's your choice and it's your money that you're paying people to do it with, like I think, like I, like I said, I think Jesus is saying there's still going to be an accounting for that because our very hairs are all numbered. And that takes another form when you think of um, of weaves and wigs and um, hair coloring, even in all of that. They come in numbers. Black, for instance, is the number one. And there's all sorts of different other numbers. You can see it when you buy hair coloring, like I said. They come in numbers. And I think uh, that may be an adaption of what Jesus is saying here, that they're all numbered. And in the divine sense, there's an accounting even for harming even the hair of the, a single hair of the head of a righteous Christian person. Uh, verse 31, do not fear, therefore you are more valued than many sparrows. So Jesus is telling us there, I believe, don't worry, be happy. God sees it all. God's watching it all. And even the birds don't fall apart from God's will. So even our very hairs are all numbered so that there's an accounting for what happens to us, what people do to us, how people treat us, even down to our very hairs. And he's saying, don't worry, is even as... Uh, even though the birds get mentioned again and again, and we're here before us, according to science and even according to the Bible, Jesus is saying we're of more value than many of them, many of the sparrows. I don't know how that makes the birds feel, but Jesus is letting us know um, we're valued in God's eyes. Verse 32, therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. So, uh, again, Jesus is saying that in following what it is he has to say, confessing him, meaning living his words, not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. That's how you're actually exhibiting and confessing and showing your Christianity, not just by saying, oh, I'm righteous. I'm in church every Sunday or whatever day you go to your holy place, but instead confessing it in the things you do because that's how people can actually measure it without you saying a word verse 33 but whoever de denies me before men him i will also deny before my father who is in heaven so that goes back to the confessing part without saying a word you can show your christianity but in the same way you can deny your christianity also by the things you do and say and jesus says when you deny him Meaning, again, those red letters, because he's laid out to us what it is. And his burden is easy. His yoke is light and his burden is easy. His burden is easy. His yoke is light, I think is how it's put in also in this gospel book of Matthew. That um, it's so light that if you choose to take it, it's really not much he's asking for you, of you, of us. So in doing that, take that on. But if you choose to deny that, uh, don't worry. You're going to also get denied on that judgment day as we think of it. Um, that's what I think he's pointing to when he says getting denied before my father um, who is in heaven. That judgment day will come. Verse 34, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. So this is going to back to what I mentioned, touched on earlier what Jesus is saying about his preaching, his words, his teachings, the red letters. Don't think that it's going to uh, cause everybody to come together, kumbaya, and uh, hold hands for peace. That's not what's going to happen at all. Instead, it's verse 35. For I've come to set a man, uh, well, he's saying but a sword, because his words will divide. Uh, just to, back to verse 34. His words will actually divide like a knife cuts uh, cuts food. 
His words will divide. Either you're going to be on the side of what he says or you're not. And you're free to do either one. But if you're going to call yourself a Christian, you should be on the side, cut on the side of what Jesus says and be on that side of things. And he's saying that in verse 35, for I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. So Jesus is saying even families are going to be divided by what it is he says, because he's saying he's come to do that. And it's his words. Remember, it's his words that they're supposed to be going forth with. It's his words that we have to confess and live by or end up denying and getting denied by. So it's his words that are going to be that dividing sword, even among family members. And before we move on, notice what he also says, a father-in-law and daughter-in-law. He uses the phrase in-law, mother-in-law. That lets us know uh, when these preachers, some of them will do it, they'll say, uh, when they talk about, for instance, the first chapter of the book of Matthew, where it goes through the genealogy of, um, of, um, Jesus's family. And it'll say, as was supposed, as it talks about in the different genealogies in the gospels. And they'll say, well, that as was supposed means, uh, in-laws. It's not talking about in-laws. They know how to say in-laws if that's what they mean. And here's an example of it right here. Matthew 10.35. So that's not what as was supposed means. It means just what it says. Presumes, presumptuously, assumed to be. That's what as was supposed is talking about. It's not talking about in-laws at all. But Jesus is letting us know that the division in families, he's going to bring it. Especially if we're living by calling ourselves Christian. Because you're going to, again, fall on one side or the other of that sword. Verse 36, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. So I've shown you before how even in my own family, I've faced that with um, my own siblings and stuff. Uh, thinking they're holier than thou, not all of them, but a select, a select few of them, at least to my face, probably more than that behind my back. But at least a select few to my face thinking that just because I'm under the, under the LGBT umbrella, that somehow makes me... Uh, worse than them, condemned over them, damned to them, uh, hell bound to them, even though some of them uh, have done all kinds of things that are actually also uh, laid out in this same Bible that lead to hell, according to not Jesus, but other things in the Bible. And yet somehow people in my own family, and just like Jesus says, in your own household, will do that thinking they're more righteous than you are. For, the, for whatever reason. But Jesus is letting us know it's his word. It's his red letters. Those Christian words that are the dividing line. That are the sword that separates and puts people on one side of it or the other of righteousness. Verse 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So I, Jesus is letting us know if the approval of even your mother and father is more important to you than the approval of being righteous in Christ's eyes, righteous according to Christ's teachings, feel free to do that. But he's saying in doing that, you're not worthy of him. You're making your choice that being getting that approval, which a lot of people do for whatever reason, sometimes it's even for inheritance reasons, sometimes Whatever reasons, maybe just for wanting love and approval, it may be for a house, you know, for a, a, a roof over your head, you may do whatever you have to do to keep that going. 
even if it means denying your faith to keep the approval of your master of the house. He's saying you're free to make that choice, but in doing that, realize you're making the choice that you're not worthy of Christ himself um, in choosing those people, those other things over him. He's not having it. He's not willing to be your second choice, your side piece. Your He's not. Verse 38, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. So it's not enough that you can choose, oh, I'm just going to choose religion because that's what people will call Christianity to lump it into religion under that umbrella because you can be religious to it. You can religiously follow it, but uh, Christianity is not the same thing as religion and religion is not the same thing as Christianity. They're not interchangeable. But if you choose to um, say that you're going to do that, you have to also walk the walk. You can't just talk the talk. He, that's where he's saying you have to take up that cross and follow after, after Jesus. And he's saying, if you don't do that, you're not worthy of him either. So if you choose your family over him, you're not worthy of him. If you choose to just uh, be Christian in name only, but actually not do any of the things he tells us. Again, you can choose to do that, but you're also not worthy of him. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So he's saying, so if you choose those other things, that that's where your life is, that's where your livelihood is, that's where you want to be, that's where you're happy, where your heart, your soul is with your fill in the blank whether it's your mama, your daddy, your family, your business, your wife, your spouse, your children, whatever that is. If you choose to do that, you're free to choose that. But realize you're finding your life there, but you're losing your spiritual life. You're losing the soul. Your body and soul are getting wrapped up there. but And your body can stay there, but your soul's not going to stay there. Your soul's going to go somewhere else. And your soul's choosing to be downstairs rather than upstairs when you choose to make those other things, your heart, which again, free will choice to do it. But Jesus is saying it is a choice. Verse 40, he who receives you receives me and he who receives me receives him who sent me. This again points to the red letters, how you'll know if a church uh, organization is Christian or not, because they'll have Christ's words. They'll have Christ's acts, backing them up. Um, that's how you'll know, because he's saying if you're receiving if you're receiving them, you're receiving him. Um, how can you receive him? Because it'll be the same preaching, the same message, the same words. But you're also free to receive, reject it. Verse 41, he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. So that was a little tricky. He's saying receiving a prophet in the name of a prophet. So the prophets are, oh, as we know, I'm the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Elijah, uh, Jeremiah, for instance, those prophets. He's saying, so if you receive a prophet in the name of a prophet, you receive a prophet's reward. So I guess that would mean if you've read the Old Testament, as we call it, and you believe those prophecies point to someone, Jesus, presumably in the uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah, for instance, then um if they receive the disciples who are coming in the name of those prophets to be pointing to Jesus, then you'll get that reward. Because the reward there is, presumably, they're pointing to Jesus. They're pointing to the Savior, the Messiah, Christ. They're, you'll get that salvation in receiving that person. Again, because they're supposed to be coming with the same message that Jesus uh, has presented us, not their own. Um, 
of verse 42. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. So Jesus is saying if your actions, not just your words, but your actions also align with um, Christianity of turning the other cheek, of loving your neighbor as yourself, going the extra mile, or even here, giving even just a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple. So, um, say, if someone you see is in need of, and in some cases even your enemy, is in need of even just a cup of cold water, if you do that in the name of Jesus, um, in the name of being faithful to Jesus, I think what Jesus is saying, you'll even get your reward in that sense also, because you're being faithful to the words that Jesus has given us to be faithful to. And in that way, you'll receive that same reward as the disciples, apostles, prophets who pointed us to Jesus received in doing their part in providing that refreshment, uh, phys literally water, figurative figuratively uh, prophecies refreshing scriptures to point us to the one who is that fountain of water that Jesus I think that's sort of what Jesus is saying I think what he's saying is to be consistent in being uh, Christ-like in our words and in our deeds so that when people receive uh, people receive us be Christians that is um doing and saying what it is Jesus would have us do and say in that same sense the people who are receiving us are receiving Christ receiving Christianity receiving the message receiving the kingdom I know that was a lot but that was actually the end of this um the end of this chapter so the end of this reading I appreciate you checking it out with me and as always hope it was a blessing is a blessing for you uh, like I said we do past we do Old Testament uh readings on Mondays and Wednesdays, these Saturdays, we focus on the Gospels. Um, you can hear the past readings here on this platform, Spotify, Anchor, uh, while they last. Or if you're an adult, you can go to my website, it's hungtgirl.com, and click on the links there, the Body, Mind, Spirit, and Soul pages to help you get to know me um, as much as I can let you know there with the spirit and soul pages focusing on what we read and do here on the naked truth. In some cases you can read along with me because they're posted there where you, the texts are posted there where you can read. You can get a membership, make a donation, or just enjoy the free content, clicking on the pictures and enjoying the free videos. I appreciate all of that. Thank you for all of that. God bless you for all of that and for joining me now. I hope you'll join me again in the meantime and after stay safe. Wash your hands. God bless you and peace be with you. Thanks again. See you next time.